The players of this story include a prominent couple who divided their time between the suburbs of Georgia and the serene Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. There's also an accountant who may have been embezzling money from several clients. After a fateful meeting one night to discuss business affairs, the couple was never seen again. Ten days later, the accountant would be dead, leaving behind a note that failed to answer all the questions members of the resort community still had. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 5, Liz and John Calvert, Part 1. Hello everyone, and welcome. This is Part 1 of a two-part series on the disappearance of Liz and John Calvert, whose case shocked the small island of Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, and also claimed the life of another local resident. In preparation for this case, I reviewed the true crime book, Deceit, Disappearance, and Death on Hilton Head Island, and part two will feature interviews with the book's two authors, Charlie Ryan and Pamela Martin Ovens. I first visited Hilton Head Island in the year 2009. One of the places we visited during our week-long stay was Sea Pines Resort, a 5,200-acre private gated community located on the southern tip of the island. Nestled within Sea Pines is a yacht basin called Harbor Town complete with a bustling marina, lighthouse, shops, galleries, and restaurants like the Crazy Crab. I had no idea two area residents had mysteriously disappeared only a year earlier. Hilton Head Island features 12 miles of beaches and is located off the coast of South Carolina. My family in particular loves this island because of the many trees, restaurants, activities, and excursions such as dolphin tours and miles of paved bicycle trails, picturesque golf courses, and tennis courts. 
It's a good place to vacation if you like to stay active rather than simply lie on a beach all day. For all the island's tranquil beaches, sunset cruises, and seafood dinners, there is a side of the island that you won't find in the glossy brochures promoting Hilton Head. There's a side where many people come to the island to reinvent themselves, partake in questionable business opportunities, and in some cases, live beyond their means. It was this last part that the Calverts ended up being involved in by sheer chance, and it most likely cost them their lives. I learned a lot about the island's history while reading Deceit, Disappearance, and Death on Hilton Head Island. For example, I discovered Native Americans had once roamed the beaches of South Carolina until the year 1663, when Captain William Hilton crossed the Atlantic Ocean from England and sailed into Port Royal Sound. There was one particular island, shaped like a shoe, that he took a liking to. It would eventually become Hilton Head. The island is about 30 miles from Savannah, Georgia, and 95 miles from Charleston, South Carolina. African slaves were once brought to the island to pick Sea Island cotton, which was highly sought after in European capitals. The slaves who picked the cotton would eventually become known as Gullahs, descendants of the Low Country South Carolina slaves who mixed Creole and African language in their speech. The Gullah tradition would eventually extend across Calabogue Sound to Defusky, which is a nearby island that is only accessible by boat and remains isolated to this day. Hilton Head Island remained pretty sparse until the early 1950s when a young Yale student named Charles Fraser arrived. He was there to harvest island trees for his father's Georgia-based lumber business. He fell in love with Hilton Head and convinced his father to let him develop the real estate. In the following decades, Fraser helped develop the island and the covenants designed to help preserve it. On Hilton Head, you won't find brightly lit tall business signs or brightly painted buildings. John Calvert was 47 years old and his wife Liz was 45 when they went missing back in 2008. They had been married for 10 years at the time of their disappearance. They were high-end entrepreneurs who owned several businesses on Hilton Head, including the Harbortown Yacht Basin, Harbortown Powerboats, and Harbortown Resorts. Liz grew up in Atlanta and received her undergraduate degree from Converse College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. She graduated from law school at the University of Georgia and went to work as a staff attorney at UPS in Atlanta. After 14 years with the company, she joined Hunter McLean in Savannah, specializing in taxes, employee benefits, and executive compensation. In her spare time, she enjoyed flying and earned her pilot's license in 2006, eventually purchasing a plane that she flew regularly in and out of Hilton Head Island Airport. John grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina and graduated from Georgia Tech with a degree in mechanical engineering in 1983. The Calvert's 40-foot yacht, Yellow Jacket, was named after the mascot of John's alma mater. He actually proposed to Liz on Hilton Head Island, further making the island a beloved locale for the couple. After working for Duke Energy for many years, John semi-retired and in 2005 purchased the Hilton Head Island businesses. 
This is when Liz and John decided to split their time between their Atlanta home and the island. Because the club group business factors so heavily into this case, I wanted to give you some background information on it. It was founded in 1986 by two men named Mark King and Dennis Gerwing. Dennis served as the chief financial officer for the property management company, which managed Sea Pines Center, located within Sea Pines, which was also home to the club group's offices. The club group handled many of the Calvert's business affairs, including leasing and accounting services. Dennis had managed the finances for the companies Liz and John Calvert owned for at least 20 years because he had managed them for the previous owners as well. However, Liz was a savvy businesswoman and had grown suspicious that there was money missing from some of the couple's Hilton Head Island businesses. She and John set up an evening meeting with Dennis at the club group's offices on March 3rd to discuss the financials. At 5.32 p.m. that day, Liz passed through Hilton Head Island's Cross Island Parkway toll plaza. She was seen boarding the yellow jacket at 5.40 p.m. and emerged wearing more casual clothing. She got in her car, a Mini Cooper, and drove the short distance to Sea Pine Center, where she was to meet John at the club group's offices. It was the last time she and John were seen alive. The next day, Nancy Kappelman, who served as the harbormaster at the Harbortown Yacht Basin, grew worried when John missed a meeting he had scheduled with her. She alerted the local authorities after discovering the Calverts weren't on their yacht in the harbor and not returning phone calls. At first, law enforcement didn't see a cause for alarm. They couldn't be positive the Calverts hadn't simply left town on a trip, although employees and family didn't think that was the case. Nancy recounted to Officer Tony Serrato that when she arrived at her office at the marina on the morning of March 4th, all the lights had been left on and John's briefcase was on the floor of the common area of the office, which was unusual. When an employee searched the yacht, she found the Calvert's cat and no sign of their dog, Sadie. Nancy searched all of the Harbortown parking lots looking for John's car, but couldn't locate it. She worried that the couple had been involved in an automobile accident. She called Liz's employer and asked for the phone number of Liz's brother, David White, and then alerted him that she couldn't figure out where the couple was. Nancy shared with Officer Serrato that Liz had noticed discrepancies in the accounting reports for the Calvert's businesses. She said Liz and John had planned to meet with Dennis Gerwing on the night of March 3rd, after Liz arrived on the island from working in Savannah. When she talked to Dennis on March 4th and asked if he had talked to the couple that day, he said he hadn't. He seemed concerned enough and called Nancy back on March 5th to check in on the status of Liz and John's whereabouts. By then, the Calverts had been listed in the National Crime Information Center for missing persons. On March 4th, investigators Meredith Florencio and Louis Novak questioned Dennis at the club group. He was reported to be cordial, although the investigators noticed he had two cuts on the webbing of his right hand. When asked about the cuts, Dennis told them he had cut his hand on a broken wine bottle. He downplayed the concerns about missing funds, explaining they involved accounting transfers that Liz simply did not understand. Liz, however, 
told friends and business acquaintances that she believed at least $100,000 was missing from their businesses. An employee at the marina office told investigators Liz first became suspicious in November 2007 when they received calls from creditors, including an unpaid bill for 10,000 gallons of gasoline. John, who often socialized and dined with Dennis, didn't seem to be convinced anything was going on at the club group. He repeated Dennis's explanation to Liz that an accounting software glitch was to blame for the discrepancies in their books. According to friends, she wasn't convinced. During Dennis's meeting with the investigators, he told them Liz arrived at his office around 6.15 p.m. and John arrived a little earlier at 6 p.m. He said the meeting lasted 15 minutes and none of the issues Liz was concerned about were brought up. He said she tended to be more passive when in the presence of John. He also said she told John they had to leave the office at 6.30 and he assumed they left together to go to dinner. No one else was present at the club group to confirm what time the Calverts left the office. Dennis said he left the office at about a quarter to seven and saw Liz's Mini Cooper parked near his Yukon. But Nancy Kappelman said she found Liz's car in the Liberty Oak parking lot at Harbortown on March 4th, the day after they disappeared. If that's the case, how did the car get from Sea Pine Center to the Harbortown parking lot? On March 5th, the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office searched Yellow Jacket and found nothing out of order or any signs of a struggle. A few days later, officials in DeKalb County, Georgia, searched the Calvert's Atlanta home and again found nothing out of order. Their Porsche and a white truck they owned were found in the garage. Liz's employer, the Hunter McLean Law Office in Savannah, said they had not talked to Liz and she had not shown up for work. One of her coworkers did mention Liz had expressed concerns that there was embezzlement going on with the accounting firm in Hilton Head. We'll return to the details of Liz and John Calvert's disappearance after a word from our sponsor. By day, I work as a journalist and magazine editor, but I also enjoy creative writing and entering writing contests. If you like writing flash fiction, you should check out the contests over at WOW Women on Writing. The deadline for the latest flash fiction contest is May 31st. This specific contest will have 20 winners and more than $1,350 in cash prizes. First place wins $400. WOW allows a maximum of 300 stories per contest. The contest is only about half full as of the date of this podcast release, so you have excellent chances of competing among the other writers. You can also purchase a critique to get more feedback on your writing. Learn more at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. And now, let's get back to the story. After leaving his meeting with the Calverts on the night of March 3rd, Dennis said he left the office and stopped at a gas station to fill up his tank and purchase a few lottery tickets. Investigators later discovered video surveillance from Seapine Center that showed Dennis pacing back and forth in one of the common areas of the center around 6.40 p.m. He was later found on surveillance footage at the convenience store at 7.39 p.m. He then said he drove to his home at Hilton Head Plantation. He had dinner and drank wine, which is where he said he dropped the wine bottle that he had cut his hand on. 
Dennis then told investigators he returned to the club group at around 10 p.m. But this time, he drove his second vehicle, a Toyota Avalon. He stopped at a CVS pharmacy to buy band-aids for the cut on his hand. He failed to mention he also purchased a box of latex gloves during that outing. Then he drove to the office and stayed there until about midnight. The next morning, he took his Yukon for service at an auto repair shop. He called a taxi to take him to his office at Seapine Center. A taxi company confirmed he was a fare at 1 p.m. No one could confirm how Dennis got from the club group back to the auto body shop later that day to pick up his car, though. When the sheriff's office interviewed Dennis's assistant at the club group, a young woman named Shaha, they learned some interesting new information. She arrived at the office on March 3rd after a four-week vacation to visit with family in China. At around 3 p.m. that afternoon, Dennis asked Shaha to follow him to the Hilton Head Air Service so he could drop off his Toyota Avalon. On the way, they stopped at his residence in Hilton Head Plantation, where he went inside his home for just a minute. When he came out, they continued on to the service station near the Hilton Head Airport. He then got in Shaha's car, telling her he had friends coming into air service that night, and he had to leave his car there for them to drive. Although investigators eventually checked the records of all the activity that night at the airstrip, they were never able to confirm if Dennis had any friends or associates that would have come in that evening. After leaving the airstrip, Shaha said Dennis had her stop at a local hardware store, and when he returned, he had purchased three industrial-grade drop cloths, paying with cash. He told Shaha he was doing some painting projects. No one could ever confirm that Dennis had been doing any painting at his home or at the club group, and no evidence of the drop cloths, latex gloves, or packaging was ever found. At 5.30 p.m., he asked Shaha to head out and pick up reports from the Harbortown Resorts so she could bring them in the next morning. He had also asked a contract employee scheduled to come by the office that evening to come in earlier in the day, making up an excuse that the computers would be undergoing maintenance at 4.30. As Shaha left the office, she saw John Calvert getting out of his car in the parking lot and thought it was strange he didn't have his briefcase on him. He normally brought one when he was coming in for business-related meetings. The day after the meeting, she remembered that Dennis did not come into the club group's offices until 1 p.m. Events instrumental to this case happened on March 6, 2008. First, Dennis retained an attorney. Next, the FBI and South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, also known as SLED, joined the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office in the investigation. They also took Dennis's phone for further examination. On March 7th, John Calvert's silver Mercedes was located in the parking lot of the Hilton Head Marriott Resort and Spa in Palmetto Dunes off Highway 278. This was about six miles away from where the meeting with Dennis had taken place at Sea Pine Center. It was covered in pollen and the passenger seat had a few empty coffee cups on it, indicating that it was most likely only one person driving the car when it entered the lot. On March 8th, the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office obtained search warrants and began searching Dennis's home, business office, and vehicles. 
they found a small, fresh pile of dirt in his kitchen, which seemed out of place in his normally tidy home. There was also a shovel with dirt on the bottom found near a side door of the house. Dennis tried to say the shovel had come from repairing his home irrigation system sprinkler, but couldn't point out any areas in the yard where the ground had been recently unearthed. In the days following the Calvert's disappearance, Dennis grew increasingly agitated. In an email to a friend, he described how his car and home were being searched and that investigators were sure he had killed Liz and John. Acquaintances who saw him dining alone at a local restaurant also reported a tearful and anxious Dennis. During the interviews conducted by the Beaufort County Sheriff's Department, they learned that Dennis's business partner, Mark King, had become aware that Liz Calvert suspected money was missing from their accounts. He spoke with Dennis and suggested they hire an outside forensic accounting firm to conduct an audit of all the club group's accounts. Mark said Dennis agreed and also participated in a conference call with the firm, and the audit was scheduled to begin the following week. On March 11th, investigators were prepared to name Dennis as an official person of interest. Before they could do that, Dennis, who was staying in a nearby rental property while his home was cleaned after the search, became unreachable. He was due at the club group's legal firm to sign a loan document, but he never showed for the appointment. He didn't return phone calls either. Eventually, two of the attorneys drove to the villa where Dennis was staying and knocked on the door. No answer. His car was in the parking lot. The attorneys reached out to Mark King, who had also grown worried that he hadn't been able to reach Dennis. King called the club group's property manager, and the two drove to meet the two attorneys at the villa. Nervously, they used their key to open the door. There was a privacy deadbolt engaged, so King and Bob Long, the property manager, had to hit the door with their backs and shoulders before breaking it open. Entering the villa, they called out to Dennis, with no response. Anxiously, they headed up the staircase, entering the master bedroom. They saw what looked like a note scrawled on the bedsheet in pen. The master bathroom door appeared to be locked, but no sounds were coming from within. They knocked, and hearing no response, they feared the worst. It was time to call 911. At 3.30 p.m. on March 11th, the Hilton Head Island Fire and Rescue reported to the scene. They forced the door to the master bathroom open, noting immediately the blood all over the bathroom floor and vanity. Inside the bathtub, they found Dennis, naked, bloody, and deceased. This brings us to the conclusion of part one of the disappearance of Liz and John Calvert. Please join me next week, where we'll follow what happened after the discovery of Dennis's body and take an in-depth look at what may have led him to embezzle money from the club group and murder Liz and John Calvert as a result. Also, there are conflicting opinions on how Dennis actually died. 
you won't want to miss the next episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'll also be dropping bonus episodes a few times a month, so hit the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode. If you want to visit my website and read more about true crime cases from all over the country, including the ones featured here, visit missinginthecarolinas.com. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at www.wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson.